As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The presenting sponsor of The Audible is Trader Joe's, which, in addition to Tremendous Groceries, now has a new podcast. It's a five-part podcast series that takes you literally inside Trader Joe's. Go inside the TJ's tasting panel. Travel to wineries in Napa Valley and around the world to discover the next great Trader Joe's products. Discover why they wear those super fashionable Hawaiian shirts. You'll find Inside Trader Joe's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman, and as often is the case with The Audible, Bruce, this is not going to be a great one for sound quality. Especially so. You may hear some background music like you hear now. It's not, it's not Stu or my theme music. I am taping it in a mall because my family and I have moved a little bit, not too far from where I used to live, but we don't have internet, so I had to relocate and improvise a little bit. So at least there's no power saws, right? I feel like <laughs> I feel like every time you move, there's some misadventure story involved with it. Whether it was people losing your stuff, or now, I mean, can I, I just, share? I don't, can I share with Can I share with the audience my my what brightened my day yesterday when I had to uh, have my my Mac worked on a little bit of the Genius Bar? Sure. I think this is fair. So I sit down. It's just like basically my space bar is not working well. So it looks it looks like one continuous word. So I sit down, and the guy next to me, as soon as like he's waiting, and as soon as his guy comes over, and it wasn't like I was eavesdropping, but he goes, "Man, I can't front." He goes, I, "I'm on Pornhub a lot, a lot," <laughs> and he goes, I'm, "I think I picks up to pick up something over there." <laughs> I just could not stop laughing because I don't I don't know what his issue actually was, but he was very blunt about it, and <laughs> he saw me laughing, and I appreciated that he didn't take himself too seriously, and that's not a bad thing. What was the reaction on the face of the I assume like seventeen year old Apple? Employee? Yeah, it was a twenty four year old guy who smiled, and he thought it was funny too. And I just think like you know this this guy was so over the top. You know, and it wasn't like, I mean, he just looked like he could have been your next door neighbor kind of guy, but it was funny. So I, I, I applaud him for, 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 for the levity. Well, it's not every day you get a Pornhub reference in the first two minutes of the Audible. And we have two guests for you today. First up, 
the SEC meetings are going on in Destin, Florida this week, and so I wanted to bring on David Ubbin, who officially joined our site, The Athletic, The All-American, this week as our new Tennessee reporter. And then... We're going to bring on Jeff Collins. He is the head coach at Temple. He just got back from a trip across the world. He took his team to Japan. There had been a lot of discussion, obviously, especially last year in the offseason about Michigan going to Europe. Well, Jeff Collins took a big part of his team over to Japan, so we'll hear what they what they learned on that experience and why they went and how those trips can be beneficial. So again, apologies in advance. You're going to hear a lot of background noise. At one point, Jeff Collins' phone cuts out, so just all around sound quality issues, but I think both of these really good discussions. Okay, we're pleased to be joined now by the All-American newest writer. Bruce, you are no longer the newest writer. It is. I'm okay. I'm okay to give up that distinction to our next guest. I'm glad we we got him. That was a big get for us. It's David Oven, who a lot of our listeners may know from his time covering the Big Twelve for many outlets like ESPN and Fox Sports Southwest, and now he's going to be covering Tennessee for the All American, and he is right now at the SEC spring meetings in Destin. David, I've never I've never covered those meetings, and I know it's your first time. Give us. Give us a little bit of lay of the land there. What's it like? So, you know, my experience, obviously, is covering the, the Big 12, and we, we complain consistently that they never bring the coaches. But that really adds a lot to the SEC's meetings. I've always been jealous that the, the coaches are kind of just roaming around, and the, they have like a little reception thing. You can kind of get to talk to a few of them, and, and people are roaming. The coaches are, uh, I believe the league requires them to be there, which I think we appreciate. And then also, you know, the SEC certainly uh, doesn't have trouble getting people here when they have it invested every year. So, you know, it basically, it's, it's a little bit of a wild, wild west in terms of, of being able to talk to people. But there's a little bit of uh, availability. And it's, everybody's, you know, loose optimism is high. And, and I think it's really valuable because unlike SEC media days, which have become sort of a zoo and not a very practical exercise, it's really trimmed down. I mean, there's usually... You know, I think this week there's probably only 20 or 30 people, you know, really covering this event in the SEC media. It's, it's not a lot of riffraff, and, and that's helpful. It kind of cuts the noise. You're able to, to get some time with people. So it's interesting. I mean, this year there's not a whole lot on the docket. Generally, just we, are, we have not had a satellite camp conversation, which I think everyone appreciates. But the transfer discussion is there. Sports gambling is there. and But nothing that's really going to be, uh, I think, a, a hugely impactful thing for, for just this year. David, just from uh, looking at it from the outside, and obviously the Brandon Kennedy issue with Alabama, backup offensive linemen, ten- I guess Tennessee and Auburn are both in the mix. Nick Saban talked on the record quite a bit, it looks like, about his feelings on it. For people who are looking at this, not necessarily as you know SEC fans or, or know much about Brandon Kennedy, you just see, okay, this isn't the first time Nick Saban has taken this stance a couple of years ago in the defensive back who ended up at Georgia. He also took an unpopular stance on that. So I, what I want to ask you is, though, it, it maybe a bigger picture, because there is there is some legislation in the pipeline that could, could impact this. For the players slash student-athletes who, in some sense, could be viewed as, as employees, because you can't do a non-compete with a student, but that's what it seems like is kind of an unwritten rule here, or I guess in this case, it's not an unwritten rule. What's going to be the fallout of this from, from what you gathered in the last talking to people and listening to people as they kind of outline their own agendas on this? I think the rule is on its last days. Just for, for listeners who don't know, basically, 
in the SEC, if you transfer within the conference, even if you're a graduate transfer, you have to sit out a year. And so that's what they're sort of wrestling with, with Brandon Kennedy, who's a backup offensive lineman who's you know, leaving Alabama and looking to go to, among other places, possibly Tennessee. And Nick Saban, you know, I was on the radio this morning in Knoxville talking about it, but it's always going to be hard for him to get a whole lot of sympathy. But I actually do sort of – he makes a good argument in that, you know, he basically said – it's the league's rule, and I don't know why I'm being villainized for enforcing this rule. He's like, if, if we, you know, we, we, so you basically, we have a conference, you know, that, that says that, that that's the rule, and I enforce it, and I'm the bad guy. And, I, and Greg Sankey talked about it a little bit later. I mean, I, I think, you know, he realizes that the coaches have to come into an agreement and figure out, okay, are we going to join sort of the rest of college football and say that's not going to be the rule? Or are we going to be having this conversation again next year when a grad transfer wants to transfer within the league and, and a coach has to stand in the way and, and sort of be the bad guy? I mean, I, I don't think there's much to win for the coaches here. I, I get some coaches' resistance to the grad transfer and that, you know, we invested three, four years in this kid and now he might come beat us. I, I, I kind of get that. But at the same time, I, I think if you're not going to pay kids or give them the, the rights to name, image, and likeness, You've got to give them as much freedom as possible. And, and so it just seems like a, a, a rule that, you know, is, is sort of unfair to kids who have done everything that they've been asked of academically. I mean, I, I think ultimately the fallout will be that I think this rule goes away, if not this year, very, very soon. Hey, guys, I wanted to bring this up as, as listening to David talk about it. One of the things I think that was one of Mike Slide's great accomplishments as the head of the SEC kind of ushered it into this area of un- uncharted success or unmeasured success or unparalleled success, we'll get to it, right, was he kind of was able to quell all the infighting and the sniping that went on with coaches. And to me, this rule, you know, kind of gets at that, where I think it kind of gets in the way of that and kind of draws some of that little friction. And that's why I'm surprised that they would keep it in play, given what they're trying to create a foster uh, a less combative relationship within the coaching ranks in the conference. Yeah, and it's not going anywhere. I mean, these things, the, the grad transfer rule is only going to grow and grow. And so these are, they're just going to be running up against this every other year. And, you know, as some, you know, it's Nick Saban's turn this year, but somebody's going to be the bad guy. And I think Nick touched on this yesterday. He's like, you know, if you guys, if people want to change the rule, I'm fine. He's like, but the reality is it's probably going to benefit us more than it benefits a lot of other people that, you know, people are going to graduate, and if Alabama needs to fix, you know, he might welcome them. But, yeah, I, I just think it, it's, it's, it's a natural conflict point that's going to come up consistently between coaches. It's hard for me to think that's good for the league, big picture. And he has, by the way, welcomed some, not maybe within the conference, but a few years ago there was a ultra-productive receiver in the MAC, Garrett Dieter, who put up huge yeah. numbers at Bowling Green. He transferred there and was just really a role player. So it's not like they haven't gotten rich off of grad transfers themselves. It's just in this case, as, as David just mentioned, it wasn't you know, within the conference. I'm curious and about think- the uh, sports gambling topic because I don't even think Bruce and I have had a chance to talk about it on here because the Supreme Court ruling came down when I was on vacation. But obviously, this has potential for monumental ramifications for all of sports. And college sports in particular has always been very, very anti-gambling. So I know it's come up there, coaches, ADs. Uh, what are they saying about the impact of the Supreme Court ruling? Well, I, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I, we could talk for hours about this topic. I mean, the simplest thing is 
you know, I asked Greg Sankey yesterday, you know, is there a way, because they're, they're, they're wanting to, obviously, the integrity of the sport is, is integral in maintaining that. And I said, well, is there a way in college sports that you think that, that, that universities or conferences can embrace sports betting and not compromise the integrity of their sport or not feel like they are, whether they are or not? And he said, well, that question is sort of premature because people want to use the word embrace. But right now, the Big 12's chief, I mean, the SEC's chief issue, and really you could say this for every conference and every university, is just understand. What is this all going to mean? What are What is that going to look like on the state level? Are, you know, we'll probably be writing about this at the uh, athletic soon, but, you know, our coach is going to have to give mandated injury reports per state law. You know, what happens in a conference when two of the states in the footprint, it's legal, and five of the states is not? What happens then? Everyone's just trying to understand right now, okay, what is this going to look like before they start embracing the revenue possibilities, which I think will inevitably become part of college sports. But, yeah, I mean, I, I've always been struck by the acknowledgement that gambling is happening and also the laughable sort of stance. I've always found it to be hilarious that when you print out your bracket on the NCAA's website for March Madness, on the bottom it always says, don't bet on it. The, the anti-gambling uh, mantra of the NCAA, it is kind of funny to me. But, yeah, when you talk about this sort of new, real sports book, big money sort of gambling conversation, they're just not ready to talk about what that can do positively. I think they're trying to get ahead and get out in front of the disaster scenarios, which we'll see if they're successful in that. Back to the podcast in a second, but first, Bruce, it's grilling season. Stu, one of my favorite quotes I've ever gotten from a football coach came from Ohio State defense coordinator Greg Schiano years ago when he said there's two things pretty much every man in America thinks he can do, coach football and work a grill. Well, I'm guessing neither one of us are great on the grill, but there's one thing that would make our jobs much, much easier. And that's when you get a good quality product you can just throw on. And we have had one just basically fall in our lap. Literally show up at our door in a cooler. And that's Omaha Steaks. And particularly timely because Father's Day is just around the corner. And if you're trying to find the perfect gift for Father's Day, Bruce, the fillets that I had just recently off the grill from my Omaha Steaks package were outstanding. Yeah, and it's not just that. I mean, chicken fried steaks... As somebody's married to a Texan, that was a big hit when we saw those. The other thing that was very, very appreciated by our guests that we had a couple weeks ago were the apple tart dessert that came up big. I think everything, I mean, first of all, it's going to take me weeks to get through everything in that package, and I'll tell you what's in it here in a second, because right now Omaha Steaks is giving a limited time offer to our listeners for Father's Day, 78% off. This is really an amazing deal. If you go to omahasteaks.com and type Audible in the search bar, you're going to get the Omaha Steaks Father's Day package, which includes two tender filet mignons, two beefy top sirloins, four chicken fried steaks, two boneless pork chops, four all-beef Omaha Steak burgers, four gourmet jumbo franks, 12 ounces of all-beef meatballs, one pound of steakhouse fries, four caramel apple tartlets, one Omaha Steaks seasoning packet, plus you get four more Real Ready Omaha Steaks Burgers, free with the purchase. That is a heck of a lineup. You cannot go wrong. Uh, the meatball is also really, really good. 
Alright, so again, get this limited time package for only $49.99 when you go to omahsteaks.com, type Audible in the search bar, and add that Father's Day package to your cart. Don't wait. The offer ends soon. Go to omahasteaks.com, type Audible in the search bar, grab your dad, and fire up the grill. Yeah, I mean, I think the issue for colleges, unlike the pros, is I don't, I don't really think there's that big a risk to point shaving in the professional sports leagues because the people are making, the players are making so much money that, like, what could, where's the incentive, right? Um, mm -hmm. what, what, what payoff could Wait, possibly Wait, say that pop? again. So you think there's less of a, you think there's more of a risk in college than there is in the NFL? There's more of a risk in college because the guys aren't yes. making, aren't yes, being paid. Yes, I agree. And if somebody I wants to tempt them, and it has happened, we've had point shaving scandals in college, I mean... It's it's now it could now in or very soon be easier to do. Now the flip side of that is it's also easier for the books, the Vegas books, to to regulate to notice it. I mean that's probably the single biggest advantage of legalizing it is they can they can they're very attuned to unusual fluctuations. Guys, I want to bring up something. I'm curious if you if you think this is how risky this is. So we're talking about less of a corporate element of college football than it certainly is in the, in the NFL. You, you know, as David alluded to, like I know Arizona does, University of Arizona would put out its weekly injury reports, Miami, University of Miami did, there was a handful of schools that would do that. But let's say there are, you know, whether it's, you know, you get some student trainer or something who has knowledge of that, of who's injured, who's not. And this has always been a kind of an interesting point to me, how much is a starting quarterback worth? How much is it, you know, like if Saquon Barkley has to sit out a game or, you know, whoever, or what, how Vegas views that. But it, there are a lot of people who are making nothing, literally nothing, if they're student trainers who may have knowledge of injury information. And I'd be curious as to how, A, how valuable that really is, and B, how concerned, if at all, are universities about that? Do they just look at it and go, you know what? Somebody's going to make money off it. That, you know, it's not like someone's throwing a game in that case. It's just inside information. Yeah, Greg said he had an interesting comment on that yesterday. You know, he pointed out that, so in the NFL, you have basically 53 players who are going to go home to their families when they're done, and they're, you know, going to be private. Uh, you have, a, you know, your assistant coaches and some media who are going to, if they have information, they're going to report it. There's not a lot of incentive to sell that to people, but... When you have college game, college uh, teams, he used the term touch point. When you have a hundred players, none of these guys are getting paid. They have classes, so if they're in a boot or if they're, you know, wearing a shoulder strap or something, people are going to have people are going to see that and pass that along. And you have a support staff that are not being paid a lot. You have trainers that are not being paid a lot. It's just a lot more people with, with incentive to sell. So. I, I do think that there, you know, is going to be it's going to be an issue for college sports. You know, the, the concept of point shaving, and I also think it it's naive when people say, "Well, gambling already happens," you know, and, and we don't we only see this occasionally. But like, I don't think people realize the scope in which this is about to be so much bigger and so many more people involved. I, I think it's going to be a, a, a side effect of, of gambling coming in, in in college sports. All right, let's transition to your new your new beat, the team Tennessee. Obviously, beginning of a new era with Jeremy Pruitt, and beginning of a new era for you yourself, David. What are you uh, kind of some of your initial impressions about Vol Nation? I mean, I, you can see the passion. I think uh, you know, like a, a 
a good example of this. Uh, so yesterday, uh, you know, Michael Cassegrain was tweeted out a picture of Pruitt, and he captioned it. Uh, it's a running joke that he's had. He captioned it, former Alabama assistant Jeremy Pruitt. And uh, you would have thought that he, you know, had used some sort of slur in relation to Pruitt because there was the Tennessee fans were uh, were furious. A few were demanding apologies. Uh, I think we saw it, you know, in the big picture with the coaching search and and the anger that, that, that stemmed from that. But even in a little thing, sometimes there, there's a little bit of passion. And I think when when you're not winning, I think those you get a little quick trigger uh, with the with the anger toward anyone. And so the fan base is obviously hungry for a winner. They they've tasted you know big time wins a long time ago, and and I think they're 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 itching to get back there. And you know we'll see if uh, if you know them trying to. Sign up for the jump on the branch of the Saban coaching tree. I will work for them. Work for Georgia. Hadn't worked for a lot of other people, but uh, it certainly had worked for Georgia. And I think we'll we'll see if, if Tennessee can sort of copy that blueprint. For me, just personally, this is a, why I was excited that we're, we brought David on. Just as somebody who covered the Big Twelve, for me, doing doing games, I found David's stuff on the Big Twelve to really be invaluable. Just because I thought. He was finding stuff, and his instincts were such that he was doing work that other people weren't providing. So I think Tennessee fans will see that, but not only Tennessee fans. I think SEC fans will will really appreciate that once once you get rolling. So you had been so just a little of your history. You had got hired at ESPN early on in the blog network, and then stayed in the Big Twelve footprint. Even though I think you're from Arkansas, right, originally. I am, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you have SEC roots, at least some version of SEC roots there. What do you think the biggest challenges are covering the sport now and covering a beat as it was, you know, whatever it was, maybe it's eight years ago now, as that as the blog network was kind of unfolding? How do you see your, your, your day-to-day and how you're approaching this thing? I mean, I think just access is is the biggest thing. I think everyone who's covered the sport knows it. I mean, even when I was just starting out in, in two thousand, you know, what two thousand nine, two thousand ten, you know, I remember, you know, at Mizzou, we we watched every single spring practice, every single fall practice, and you got you know fifteen twenty minutes a week of practice during the season. And even when you know I was touring around the Big Twelve, most most everybody was opening up practices and saw a lot. And that is just not really happening anymore. I, I, you know, I think when I first started covering the Big 12, I think 40 or 50% of the league, most of their spring practice was open. Now, I'm, you guys might help me out with this. If you could guess how many Power 5 programs have more than, like, one vanilla practice open a spring, I mean, it's got to be, what, in the teens, maybe, if it's even that high? And it's not any of the big ones. Uh, I think that is definitely the biggest obstacle. It's just hard to be as educated about your beat and write with as much context and, and perspective uh, as people used to be able to. So with Tennessee, I think, you know, I was there through the, in early April, and at that time, I believe that was the first, it was, you know, maybe midway through spring practice, and that was the first day they'd made any players available to anyone. Coach, like other Saban, Saban and his disciples, his assistants are off limits. But what I think is cool about our model and, and where I think you'll do so great for us is that just puts more of an emphasis on being creative and being analytical and, uh, you know, basically working with not having to be so dependent on how many quotes did I get this week. So given mm-hmm. the, given the, the timing that you're walking into that place, I got to think 
there's a lot of there's a lot of story to be told there. I think so, and I think uh, I like the idea of having to 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 get creative and, and do those things. I think it gives us a real opportunity to differentiate ourselves. You know, when they're giving you you know access to you know ten players a week and assistance every week. You know, it's hard to do, you know, you, you've got to write those things. Uh, but when it's, when it's trimmed down, you know, I, I think it's, it gives us an opportunity to do things that, that nobody else is doing and, and, and talk to people that nobody else is talking to, get perspectives that nobody else is getting, and, and help people see the program in the way that, that no one else is doing. And I think that's, uh, that's what I want to do when I get there and, and sort of start to uh, really uh, sort of ingrain myself in the beat. One, uh, just one last thing. So, as Stu alluded to, he was already there on a visit. His takeaways, I think, some Tennessee fans probably were not were not thrilled with his his quick read on the balls in 2018. If we put the over under on how many wins that Tennessee has this year at six, are you taking the over or the under? Oh, am I going to get kicked off the podcast if I say push? Am I? <laughs> I think I, I would if I would probably lean over, and I think this is why. So Tennessee obviously has issues; they've got a lot of holes to fill. But I think people underrate the impact of a team and a roster that is not invested. And I think you could probably say the same about a coaching staff. I think it was obvious very early on in 2017 that Bush Jones was gone, and we saw this at Florida as well uh, when they fired McElwain. When everyone in the building knows. You know, what I'm doing, a new coaching staff, you know, is probably not going to care about. This stuff may not matter next week. You know, we know they're probably not going to promote from within. We know it's going to be a whole new coaching staff. And when you have to deal with that for weeks on end, you know, months on end, I, I think you see the results of that on the field. I think you saw that with Tennessee last year. I think there was not a really strong sort of belief in, in what they were doing. And then obviously... In a, in a sort of rebuilding type year without Josh Dobbs, they, they didn't have the talent to, to stomach some of that. And so I think if, they, if Tennessee surprises people and maybe wins a few more games and, and gets to a bowl game, I think it'll be because of that. I think it will be because they see, oh, well, maybe they're, 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 they're still, they got a lot of a talent and a lot of growth to do, on the, a lot of growth to, to, to see uh, in this program. But I don't think you saw anything close to what they're capable of last year, even with those talent deficiencies, because... I don't think that investment was there. We've seen that so often, and I think that's something that, that Tennessee can look for next year. I think those are all fair points, but I'm still taking the under. I think the cover's pretty bare. <laughs> Bruce, when you set an over-under, well, though, three you need wins, to do... Three guaranteed wins. You need to do .5. <laughs> you should have said 5.5, and then David would have taken the over at 6, and I would have taken the under at 5. No, I would, because I think, I think, in my mind, I think they win six games. That's why I, was, I went for that. I, I think they will... It will be good enough to get to a 500 in the regular season, and I think that honestly, I think the the SEC East is mediocre enough for them to pick up a couple of wins here or there. Because I think, you know, David said they have issues. Everybody, everybody, but pretty much Georgia in that division has some issues. South Carolina probably has less than somebody else, but I just think there's still some good players in there relative to the Missouris, Kentuckys, certainly Vandy's in Florida at this point. Yeah, I think the one thing that, that you look at, if you, if you really look at their schedule, you know, I, I think there's probably only four games probably that they just really are not going to win. They're not going to beat Georgia, Bama, Alabama, probably not going to beat West Virginia. 
But every other game, I mean, they have, you know, basically three guaranteed wins. They're not playing anyone in, in non-conference beside West Virginia. Three guaranteed wins, and then the rest of them are all, you know, pretty winnable games, you know, and uh, that's that, that's sort of the, the rub for them, is if they can squeeze some, some wins and go about, you know, 500 in there, then all of a sudden you're looking up and, you know, six, seven wins in, the, in year one doesn't look that uh, doesn't look that daunting. But we'll see. I mean, we've got to see what, what they look like when they actually have, uh, you know, uh, a whole new, you know, system on both sides of the ball on the field. And we'll see that pretty quickly because CBS just announced this morning that West Virginia and Tennessee is their 3.30 Eastern game of the week that first Saturday. So, all right, well, David, go back to enjoying all the sights and sounds of Destin, Florida. I will. I'm, I was fortunate that we did not get pounded with an actual hurricane. There's, I didn't think we were going to see the sun this week, but it is uh, turned into a gorgeous week here. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. No problem, guys. Anytime. Okay, and now we are joined by the head coach of the Temple Owls, fresh off a very interesting trip that he and a lot of his team took overseas on the other side of the globe. Jeff Collins, thanks for joining us today on the Audible. Hey, no worries. Thanks for having me on. All right, Coach, so this trip, as I understand it, it was yourself, some staff, and 80 of your players, and they took a three-credit course in sport, culture, and tourism in Japan. What did you learn right. from that from this trip? Well, I, the big thing is when we, you know, before we went over there, um, I didn't know the full scope of what uh, the, the Japan, Japanese culture was trying to do, but they're trying to create uh, NCAA athletics over in Japan. And uh, Temple University actually has a campus right in Tokyo, and we've become at the forefront of the conversation uh, of helping you know them learn all the ways of the NCAA and create a system of intercollegiate athletics over there. So when you bring your kid your kids over, are, is it as much them learning as they are teaching, or like what were some of the takeaways you think you've noticed from them just being in, with such a different culture? And, and making such a, you know, we've seen, heard a lot about Michigan taking their, their program over to Rome and to Paris. For you guys, what was your observations from what your kids got from this? The, the big thing is the, the Japanese culture, uh, especially in Tokyo, is a lot different from ours. You know, you go around the city and there's, you know, you know a couple of million people uh, right in Tokyo. And uh, there's not a piece of trash on the ground. There's not a bubblegum wrapper. There's no graffiti everything's orderly everybody's polite that was very very interesting and eye-opening you know for the rest for all of us when you go on the transit system uh there's not a lot of noise everybody's orderly everybody's when they're supposed to be standing on the left hand side of the stairwell that's where they are if they're supposed to be you know behind the yellow line that's where they are and i thought that was a really neat and you know something to be respected um, about their culture we did three camps uh, and three clinics, coaches' clinics throughout the country, and those were really good. Our players did an unbelievable job working with translators, teaching those guys even a higher level of the game they already play and love. How is some of this? Do you think maybe the culture is any of it applicable to what you guys are doing for your own culture of the of the of Temple football? Yeah, hundred percent. So the the very interesting thing is we went to uh, went to a university. And, you know, we were at the university, we noticed that it was, you know, spotless, all the chairs were where they're supposed to be, you know, again, not a piece of trash on the ground. And uh, the, the, the coach there at the university said that they don't have uh, a janitorial staff or a custodial staff, that the students there have to actually clean up after themselves. You know, so every day after lunch, the entire student body 
acts as the janitorial service, and that's kind of what we do in our facility, you know, up in North Philadelphia, is within 30 minutes after practice or within 30 minutes after a workout, it's their job to make sure the locker room, the facility is spotless, and it's even better than when they got there. And uh, so our kids definitely noticed that, respected it, appreciated it, because that's something that we that we do in our facility well. I'm curious, Jeff, about one thing you said earlier about help. You're, you guys are trying to help build an NCAA football-type system there. You know, we've seen FBS college football players come from various parts of the world, especially lately a lot of Australian punters. But Japan is not a place we've, we've necessarily seen that from yet. Where Where are they... I assume very early in the development of college football in Japan. Sure. Well, let me say this: we've got we actually signed two uh, kids from Sweden this past year, and then to go over there to Japan. You know, they've had you know some form of club football there for over sixty years, and uh, so the, the talent level is pretty good. The skill level, the fundamentals, the techniques. You know, obviously, when I take you know our six foot six, three hundred twenty pound <laughs> offensive tackles over there. You know, they're, you know, far bigger than anybody that we ran across, um, you know, in the entire country of Japan. But I thought the skill level was pretty good. The coaching was really good. And uh, just their eagerness to learn uh, the game from our guys was, was impressive. Hey, Jeff, a couple of things came to mind. First, when you're talking about just the cleanliness and, and orderly, you know, one thing that it reminded me of was when Brian Kelly got the Notre Dame job. I remember him talking and there's no way around this other than this being a Charlie Weiss thing, but talking about like how the locker room was a mess. And he was like, this is a, like it's, it's indicative of a bigger problem. Kind of like if you don't care about the locker room, if it's, you know, like, and when he explained it to me, I was like, Oh, I totally get this, why this matters. So I I imagine that's a similar point for what, what you're kind of seeing. Right. 100%. 100%. And then, you know, we, we always say we leave everywhere we go better than we found it. Uh, one of my greatest stories about our, our football team is during Thanksgiving week this past season, uh, we had a huge Thanksgiving dinner. It was on fall break, so there's no students around. It was a Tuesday night. After the huge Thanksgiving dinner for the family, the staff, and our team, we sent the players to a movie because there wasn't really thing going on on campus. And at the end of the movie, the, the manager... Um, of the movie theater, called me himself and was like, Coach, it was unbelievable. Your players, at the end of the movie, we gave them candy, popcorn, drinks, all those things, literally went to one end of the aisle, the older guys, and went down to make sure there wasn't a piece of paper or a cup or a box left in the theater because, you know, we take care of the things ourselves. If we make a mess, we're going to clean it up. And that's just a cultural thing that we've tried to establish and our players do an amazing job with it. Mm. Hey, Stu, so when... The uh, some of the tie-ins. So I remember Leach had done a clinic in Japan a long, <laughs> a long time ago, maybe early in the in the uh, Texas Tech days, and he went over with uh, Robert and I, who's now the UVA offensive coordinator, big O-line guy, and uh, and this is probably not the cleanest story in the world, Jeff, but bear with me. So I guess <laughs> they they came. I don't know if they're in some kind of bathhouse or something, but what they would see would be there would be footprints. There would be like like for somebody's foot, and then there'd be a hole in the ground. And what it was supposed to be was basically the equivalent of like a toilet, except there was no seat. Okay. And what you would do is you'd squat, you'd put your feet in a certain place yep. and squat. And Leach goes, "Well, here's the problem: most, you know, average Japanese person is not six five like Robert and I. So <laughs> where his feet are, 
he's missing the hole, so he's leaving a big pile of, of something on him oh, on my. the hole because he doesn't lie. Because, yeah, this is probably not the way we were supposed to do this. This is not how we were supposed to get contribute to their society, was what Robert and I left behind. When we were in Kyoto, we saw those very similar toilets. And when you see them live and in person, it, it's inspiring. It, <laughs> You're not used to seeing that you're supposed to use a hole in the ground and squat or whatever. So. so, Jeff, I was wondering if we could get into your background a little bit. And I have to say, I, I didn't realize this until we were getting ready for this interview. Perhaps I should have. But you were on Nick Saban's first staff at Alabama in 2007 when, when he was you know, just getting that thing started. And I'd be curious, how did you get connected with him in the first place? How rigorous the interview process is that, maybe? And in terms sure. of what did you, I know you were only there a year, but... Um, right. What did you see that maybe indicated what what was about to happen there? So I mean, it was like a, you know getting a years a year doctorate course in coaching and administration, and um, for me, it was one of the best years of my life to get ready to be a head coach because I was actually in an off the field role uh, for Coach Saban that year that I was there with him. Um, I was running recruiting, but for twenty four hours a day, or you know, I'd say eighteen hours a day. I was with Coach Saban for 365 days, and every single hour of every single day is is just constant kinetic energy. There's not a wasted second in the entire day. So we'd start the day. We'd go to defensive meetings. Um, I was blessed to to be in there. Me, Jeremy Pruitt, uh, was also an off-the-field guy at the time. So we were in those meetings with Kirby, Lance Thompson, Kevin Steele. So it was a really good room, and obviously Coach Saban. And then we'd break, go to staff meetings, and I'd sit on the direct other end of the table from Coach Saban, looking eye to eye at him. And then after the staff meeting would open, we'd go to recruiting, and it would just be me and Coach Saban in a room together, talking recruiting, talking roster management. So for me, as the, a development as a head coach, to get that kind of access to what is arguably the, the greatest college football coach of all time was invaluable to, to my development as a coach cool story about the the, inter, the interview process so i was at georgia tech at the time um and it was kind of getting close to signing day and all those kind of things and coach Saban, as everybody remembers was the only thing that was on sports center he was the hot topic 24 hours a day um on espn on sports center on sports talk radio so i actually changed my wife's name in my cell phone to coach Saban. Because invariably, she's going to call me five, six, seven times a day. And if I'd be in a group of people, I'd just hold up the phone like, oh, I got to go. This is Coach Saban on the phone. It was always <laughs> just my wife. It was never, obviously never Coach Saban. Signing day comes. We had a great recruiting class at, at Georgia Tech. And uh, within the next two days, I got a call from an unknown number, and it was Coach Saban. And he had heard the job that we had done recruiting at Georgia Tech. And I thought somebody was playing a joke on me. So I think I hung up on him after the first first call. Thank goodness he called me back, and uh, then the rest is history. That's hey, Jeff, one of the things I was going to ask you, so you had, I think your first D.C. job was at FIU with Mario Cristobal, and the other, like, one thing I would, this would bode well, I think, if you're an Oregon fan, is Cristobal had a ridiculous amount of success finding guys on the front end of their jobs who turned out to be big deals in their own right, not just as coordinators. You were, you certainly won the OC at the time, I believe was Scott Satterfield. who's done an awesome 100%. job at Appalachian state. I don't know. I think, yep. were you followed by Todd Orlando or was there somebody in between? Todd Orlando, Todd? Yes. Yeah. Todd Orlando replaced me when I left to go uh, to Mississippi state. 
Wow. So when you're on that staff, do you see, like, can you tell, okay, Scott is going to be a big time head coach at some point pretty soon too. Like, are you, can you, are you just so focused in on your own deal and making it go that, you know, maybe you're just not seeing the whole thing like that? No, absolutely. I knew, I knew Scott was special. It was great every single day. I thought I'd develop even more as a coach. Now I've been a defense coordinator division three level for two years, uh, back when I was a young coach. And then at Western Carolina, I was a defense coordinator for four years uh, at the FCS level. But then that was my first Division One coordinator job. But just going head-to-head with Scott Satterfield every single day at practice, I think, made us both better. And uh, that year, you know, I think the year before Scott and I got there, I think they only had two wins or three wins at most. Um, and then we come in and we win the conference and, uh, you know, both moved on. He went to, back to App and I went to... Uh, Mississippi State, but it was obvious that that he was a big time ball coach, and he and I are still close friends to this day. Now you spent four seasons working with Dan Mullen at Mississippi State, including that great 2014 season where you guys went to the I Orange did, Bowl. I did. Then you went to yep. Florida, we number one in the country for ten years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was there the the day you guys beat Auburn, and I've told people I think the loudest stadium I've ever been in. Was that stadium that day with the cowbells, the deafening <laughs> there's, cowbells? There's no doubt. And the first three defensive plays for the Bulldogs, we created turnovers. Wow. And that's the, that was the so win that after a, which you that, guys that, moved that, up to number one. Yep, yep. We had beat Texas A&M the week before that. We had beat LSU the week before that. And then college game day was there, and it was rocking. So I thought you might have a unique perspective on something. You You – Spent that time with Coach Mullen. Then you went to Florida and yep. spent some time there. And now Coach Mullen's the right. coach at Florida. From your time with him and your time in Gainesville, you know, what, are, what are some of the, you think, the, the biggest challenges he'll face in, in uh, turning that program around? Well, the nice thing about Dan is he knows exactly what he's getting into. You know, he won two national championships there with Coach Meyer. So he, you know, he knows as well as anybody, you know, what the expectation level are of the fans you know, the talent base that's there and how to bring the system that, you know, Urban ran and he ran at Mississippi State and I think he perfected it in within his framework of coaching. And uh, so I, I think Dan's going to do a really nice job there. Jeff, we, and, and we the, swamp, the, swamp, the swamp's a loud place too now. Yeah. Sometimes you can't even hear yourself think. For you now taking over, this is year two for you at Temple. What's realistic? A couple of years ago, Matt, you know, Matt Rule had a big year there, and obviously, sure. you guys have had the Temple tough thing, and I, I imagine that's carrying over to what you want there as yep. well. So, how can you, you know, how how much better can this program get? Because when you look at at the way that that conference is set up with UCF and USF, the resources they have, just in terms of all the talent around them you know that well being a UCF guy for a long time right and then you have the Texas schools the way they're positioned and obviously you know Neomatololo does an awesome job at, at at Navy so what I mean what does it take to to do even better than you know what what you what happened sure. maybe the year before you got there right well the nice thing is we won four out of the last five games um, won the bowl game I think it's the third bowl win um, in Temple University history signed a ridiculous recruiting class this past season. But the nice thing, and here's our niche, you know, I know Florida, since Florida, South Florida, and then even the Texas school have a very fertile recruiting ground. But here's the nice thing for us. The DMV, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania 
are on that par with a great recruiting base as well. But the neat thing for us is we have no natural competitors that are in our, you know, upper echelon of the group of five schools or as our conference says, a power six school. So the guys that we should get, you know, there's not a lot of head-to-head battles with people that are in our league or, you know, one step above us or below us, whatever that case may be. So we're sitting really nice to be able to get the guys within our recruiting footprint that want to play at a very high level, you know, play early, play in a good system that, you know, has reduced uh, the most NFL draft picks in the last four years in the Northeast and the most free agents in the Northeast as well. Hey, uh, just the last thing for me, Jeff. See what we've done, yeah. Hey, Jeff, just the last thing for me, uh, just know, knowing how your schedule is set up, you had a, an interesting double. I'm not sure I've ever seen this before where you go, you play Army one week, and I guess you might have had a bye in between, but then you play Navy, and right. you, you lose to Army in overtime, but you beat Navy the following week, and that's when you guys really went sure. on that roll. I mean, is that almost yep. the best... Uh, are you, uh, is that almost the best case scenario? And I know you've spent a bunch of time at Georgia Tech, so you know, you know that offense probably better than sure. almost anybody. But is that the best case scenario for your guys where you, you're almost so immersed in what they're, what these service academies are trying to do that by week two or by the, you know, by you've had it for three weeks that you're, you know, just basically seeing it. You don't have to kind of have a shock to the system kind of deal. Yeah. That, that was a, that was a great setup that we lost in overtime to an 11 win. Uh, Army team, but the nice thing for me is having to be a defense coordinator in the Southern Conference for four years. That was Georgia Southern when they were rolling with the triple option. Wofford was running, Citadel was running, and we played Nickel State. So for four years, I played that offense four times a year, three times a year, and then twice it was four times a year. So I've been well versed in defending that offense. And here's the thing that a lot of people fail to do that we do at Temple is treat it like an everyday deal. So there's not one day last preseason, one day last spring, uh, that we did not defend the triple option. So we, even though, you know, a lot of people wait until the week of to start preparing for it. Every single day, our kids see that form of offense during pursuit drill. So that the time it comes, you're not, oh, we got to do this defense. It's already ready. And I thought that was the big advantage that we had in defending it so well. I think both of them we held over half of their yardage rushing-wise. Um, so I think the way we practice and the way we um, treat that offense helped us, but obviously the scheduling uh, wasn't bad either. All right, Coach. Well, we appreciate your time. As, uh, sure. as I think I mentioned this on social media, you guys you guys have a connection to Temple. My stepdad was, on, was actually on a really right. good team in the mid-40s. For a long time, right. I think that might have been the last team to maybe beat Penn State. I don't know what, how many years. It might have been 60 years or something like that. So it's right. been uh, it's been nice to see the resurgence of Temple, you know, especially in the yeah, last last few years. And uh, I think it's been cool to see how you guys, especially you guys, are on the cutting edge of doing a lot of smart stuff on social media and how sure. you've done it. And um, so we appreciate your time, especially the perspective on the, the Japan trip. It's cool to see programs doing things that are so outside the box and how it can. Uh, and we're, we've got a campus in Rome, so we're going to go to Italy next summer. It's going to be a blast. Will you take, how many players will you take over to that? So last year we took eight to Tokyo, so I'm shooting for 12 uh, this time since it was such a huge success. I, I think we'll be able to swing 12. All right, thanks, Coach. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thank you. All right, well, that's it for this week. Next week, we will get to your email, so send those to 
theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. If you enjoy our podcast and you haven't subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? Subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a five-star review while you're there. We'd like to thank our presenting sponsor for 2018, Trader Joe's. We'd also like to thank our producer, Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes or Spotify. You can subscribe to my college football website, The All-American, by going to theathletic.com slash theaudible, where you get a 25% discount and a seven-day free trial. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB on Twitter. You can follow me at SL Mandel. See you next time. Talk about it for years. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.